You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to the program for this uh, very foggy, very cold Sunday. Um, I hope you've got a nice heater and you're sitting by it or a bit of a fire going if you've got that kind of house. Wish I had a wood fire at home. It's pretty nice sometimes. Thank you to Freedom of Species, uh, who will be back next week from 1 o'clock. Uh, if you want more information about them, 3cr.org.au is the place to go. Um, but also want to let you know that we are still raising money for uh, the 3CR Radiothon. And if you want to donate, um, there is a page online um, that you can donate to uh, specifically to us. Um, you can find that by heading to the Encyclopedia website, encyclopedia.org, uh, following our social media or just go to the 3CR website, uh, which is easy to find, 3cr.org.au. Uh, my name's Nick, and sitting across from me is Ash. How are you doing? Good afternoon, folks. I'm doing quite well. Happy solstice, everyone, and a uh, bit of a shout-out to all the all the people that um, took the time to mark the ceremony last night. Uh, a year ago, I was at Beyond Psychedelics in Prague and kind of made some, um, I guess, you know, set some intentions for myself. And last night, got to, um, I guess, witness a ceremony and, and put some of those intentions into practice. So, a bit of a shout out to all those beautiful weirdos. And thank you to Freedom of Species for the previous hour. You can hear them every week. Uh, really interesting show this week, talking about some of the aspects of colonization and how they related to farming and uh, impacted uh traditional cultures you can listen back to their show and indeed to any show if you go to the 3cr website at 3cr.org.au this is in psychedelia and we talk about all things drugs Uh, anything related to the topic harm reduction politics policy philosophy the whole works Um, while nick's getting some stuff together for this week's show he's a little bit ill so we're kind of you know, kind of winging it a little bit for this show, but um, (laughs) I think often you guys out there don't don't hear that, but that's frequently the case. So we've had about four years experience doing it. So um, winging it's kind of what we do. So I'm going to start off the show this week, just uh, letting you all know about a couple of events happening in Melbourne this coming week. On uh, tomorrow, in fact, is the monthly Yarra Drug and Health Forum. That happens at the Richmond Town Hall. It's a forum to discuss alcohol and other drug issues uh, related to the local community. Uh, It's free. Anyone can go along and um, find out about it, ask some questions. That will be happening at uh, Level 2, 333 Bridge Road, Richmond, from 12.30 p.m. And I think, um, I'm not sure if it's happening at the moment, but there is an intention with the Yarra Drug and Health Forum to try and... um, make more of that content available uh, for the public to either live stream or to listen back to later. We've, we've played some of the, um, some of the guest speakers that uh, go to the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. We've, we've played some of that content here on the show. Uh, it can be quite interesting. Um, it's one of those places where um, you have a mix of people from the community, from the AOD sector and from the police force all kind of coming together to talk about... Um, how to work on combined strategies. And then Wednesday is Support Don't Punish Day. Um, Support Don't Punish Day is an international event that's been happening for, I think, about five years now. And it was set up in response to um, 
it's like the uh, United Nations Day Against Drug Abuse. Uh, and unfortunately, it's, um, it's a day where some countries that have, um, I guess, a hardline approach to drugs take the opportunity to actually execute people and, um, I guess, show that they're being tough on drugs. And that's tragic and awful. And uh, so Support Don't Punish Day sort of emerged as a response to that to basically say you know what uh that is actually not ethical and it's also not effective so let's talk about alternatives let's talk about how we can support people with addiction uh issues rather than punish them as a as a pathway to both a more effective policy and also a more ethical one uh over the past few years in psychedelia has um either hosted or recorded, uh, helped to organize various events, uh, sometimes involving some pretty cool art. Uh, one of the things that um, the International Day tries to do is essentially make the, make the issue really present on social media. So there's a lot of art, there's a lot of photographs of people participating in actions around the world and sharing them with the international sort of community and, and um, just trying to highlight the fact that this is an issue that people care deeply about. They care deeply about it all over the world. Uh, so we've, we've, we've had events in, both in the public where we've um, had a mural down, uh, I think it was down ACDC Lane and handed out various flyers to passers-by just highlighting uh, some of the expenditure on, um, on prisons and, and some aspects like that of the drug issues and highlighted how much more effective um, policies of compassion are. So this Wednesday, there will be an event happening, and let me just get the details up. We'll have um, Greg Denham, who was on the show, I think, last week or the week before, from the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. He's an ex-police officer who's done a, a great deal of work in the harm reduction space. Peter Wern will be speaking. He was the former... C CEO was he of of YSAS or he no no he's um what he worked with uh, YSAS and he's um uh, been been involved with uh, harm reduction especially in the youth space since since he was a young man so yeah long yeah, time so he he was also on last week's show so you can listen back uh, as I said on the three CR website. Kate Sear, who is um, Associate Professor of Law at Monash University, who has in fact just uh, published a really in-depth analysis with some people from the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, looking into Australia's various drug diversion programs. Um, they are essentially, I guess, the I would call it the soft and wussy end of decriminalisation in Australia, where police have the option to uh, give you a caution or issue you with a drug diversion notice um, in lieu of a criminal penalty. Um, and they've done a really in-depth analysis. And when I say in-depth, this is a peer-reviewed uh, paper that runs to about 100 pages. So uh, if you're familiar with the academic space, often published literature might vary from like three to 10 pages, but this is a very in-depth review. She's going to be talking about some of that. And, um, and Shauna, who is a uh, transgender woman who grew up in Eastern Australia, and she's presenting experiential insights into uh, opioid and stimulant use in Australia in the context of law, human rights, poverty, homelessness, um, and essentially 
trying to paint a picture of what that actually looks like and uh, I guess why policing is not the appropriate response. Uh, Also speaking will be Sione from Harm Reduction Victoria and this will be happening at... Uh, Kensington Town Hall, which is, um, it's just off, I think it's Flemington Road. Um, can't remember the exact address, but if you Google Kensington Town Hall, you'll be able to find us right near the train station as well. Um, and tickets are free, um, but you do need to register because they're limited. Uh, and you can find that. Yeah, there's a link on the Encyclopedia website. Also on Facebook, on our Facebook, you can look on Harm Reduction Victoria's Facebook as they're um, uh, helping to host the event. Uh, or uh, you can, I think you can probably find it via supportdontpunish.org as well. Yeah, most of the events are listed there. In fact, if you're listening from somewhere outside of Melbourne, you can go to the Support Don't Punish website and often there'll be a local event um, from the large to the small. Uh, some, sometimes some of the... Um, treatment services they'll put on various sort of tea teas afternoon teas or dinners that kind of thing um and the the wednesday event here in melbourne i think starts at 3 30 is that right uh four o'clock four, four till o'clock. six p.m yep mm. right 3 30 is when i'm rocking up yes yeah yeah <laughs> right and um so the the other event happening this coming week is a students for sensible drug policy event as part of their be heard not harmed campaign um, and it's uh, they've been running a series of events called the Future of the Party, essentially trying to broaden the conversation um, beyond just pill testing, which we're all in support of, to what other issues affect the party scene and um, how can we talk about them, how can we talk about uh, issues that impact people and how can we talk about the, the pathways where people can be better supported and better included in that scene. Um, this event will be happening at the Gasso, the Gasometer, down here in Collingwood. Uh, that is Saturday the 29th from 8pm. And the panel is called uh, Beyond Over-Policing. And that will be featuring uh, Jess Murray, who um, formerly worked at uh, New South Wales Dancewise, is a harm reduction expert and really good speaker on these kinds of issues. She uh, has, you know, well, I mean, she's worked in New South Wales where the policing environment is quite different, but also had to negotiate with police as stakeholders. And so finding the balance of how that works can be uh, tricky, but it's also important to, to understand how things look like sometimes behind the scenes so that you can know how to make the, the best difference. Uh, there'll also be Dr. Peter Malins, uh a uh, lecturer in criminology at RMIT and I guess Australia's kind of premier expert on sniffer dogs uh, recently published um, some in-depth data that you might have seen out and about talking about the ways that uh, the sniffer dog programs in Victoria and New South Wales can be really harmful for um, people in particular people who have had a previous experience of um, some kind of trauma and and the experience of going through having a sniffer dog detection and being strip searched can be quite a traumatic experience that um, is perhaps not accounted for in the police's policy or certainly if it's accounted for they certainly don't seem to care uh, too much about it and um, Alice Pierce who is um, uh, I think the treasurer at no secretary at students for sensible drug policy in New South Wales also works in the harm reduction space and um, 
there'll, there'll also be, so that's the panel. And um, I think the event is free if you arrive in time for the panel. And let me just see, $5 at the door. Um, uh, yeah, if you come for the panel and if you come just for the party later, $10 at the door. Half price if you share the event and post a screenshot in the comments. And um, DJs will be SNS, Toofy and Ellie Walsh. So um, those parties have typically been both informative and a hell of a lot of fun. Um, so go along. But if you can't go along, I believe they've been trying to live stream as much of the panels as possible. So um, if you can't make it in person, feel free to check in online and uh, at least check out the panel. Right now, uh, on Encyclopedia on 3CR, it is Baker Boy with Mariuna. Mo, mo, mo. Listen, you'll find out. I'm a proud black younger boy with a killer flow. Listen to the year that here, listen to it blow. For the boys, younger boys, all the way from Manum Land, they're a boy in the Jalapu, that is in there, you know, Balanda Bugu. The Muriranga Yamachiko. Napukajate, Naputo, Ripuko, Walla Mangu, Jamakamana Pabir, Ripu, Ripu, Mitiko. Bubu in a machine and you go.
And Zagadelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, still uh, collecting donations for Radiothon, uh, the targets here at 3CR, which helps us keep the lights on, keep the broadcast equipment going and uh, uh, helps us with, you know, other little bits and pieces around the station. Uh we, you can donate now, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate, uh, or head to the Encyclopedia website, encyclopedia.org, where you can find information on how you can donate. You can do that online, uh, or you can come into the studios uh, at uh, in uh, Fitzroy, at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy, or pay, post a check or may, uh, money order, if uh, that's up your alley, to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood, Victoria, 3066. Uh, now, <coughs> I have to excuse me. Uh, stepping back for a moment, uh, back to, you know what, actually, in, what's the date today? 2023. Uh, not next week, the week after. Uh, it's our it's our four-year four birthday here oh, wow. on, on 3CR. Yep. Does four that- years. Wow. Yeah, not qu- it doesn't quite line up because the obviously the Sunday <laughs> four years ago was on like Tuesday when but yeah, four years of doing in psychedelia, talking about these issues. Um and um you know, I think we've we say regularly some things change, some things stay very the same, some things get worse. I think uh like looking at the sniffer dogs in in New South Wales, they've actually got worse over over that four I year think period. Th- they've gotten worse, but I think the the community has, um, I guess, risen up out of their apathy. I would say, the the fact that they got thousands of people out on the street earlier this year to protest. It looks like the um, uh, the discussion that, that that's happening at the moment. I think is that the lockout laws might be getting overturned. Uh, so some forward progress. I, the fact that that events have been leaving the state has really. Uh, highlighted to some people just just how hardcore the the policies have been that it has become unsustainable for safe events to continue to operate in New South Wales. And uh, it's it's a it's a fairly sort of common popular narrative now that Melbourne is a twenty four hour cosmopolitan city, and Sydney closes shop at ten pm on a Friday night. You know, so go home to bed. That's where uh, uh, Berejiklian would prefer you, because then you're safe. You're safe. Yeah, I had a, I had a chat with somebody from New South Wales recently because I, I had thought that maybe we were seeing a bit of a revival in the warehouse scene up there as a response to this, and, and they were like, yeah, but not that much. Right. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, and another thing uh, that uh, is is happening at the moment, uh, there is a petition uh, that we've helped get up on the Victorian Parliament website. So there's e-petitions when you sign it. Uh, it's sponsored by a member of Parliament and it will be tabled in Parliament uh, once it comes to the finish date. And this petition uh, is calling for an inquiry into our roadside drug testing uh, scheme. So going over some quick facts uh, about it, roadside drug testing uh, uses the drug wipe device the drug wipe device can detect the presence of a drug uh, which is either methamphetamine, MDMA or cannabis. Those are the only three of the 250 uh, illicit a- substances. Amphetamines more broadly, or not amphetamines just methamphetamine. More, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, of the 250 illicit substances 
in Victoria, those three are tested for, and the drug wipe device can de- detect that far beyond the period of effect or of uh, of, of sort of even a, a hangover, if you want to say that cannabis has a hangover, which I don't think it does. So what ends up happening is people can be detected um, days after, and I mean, in some cases, weeks. There was a case in New South Wales recently where uh, a lady had her uh, charges dropped because uh, she said that she got a positive uh, from passive smoking and that was accepted by the courts um so the number number of problems with this scheme and each and each and every one of these tests uh that they do on drivers um the commercial value of these tests is about 60 dollars per test so you can guarantee the victorian police are getting slightly cheaper deal but how much cheaper i'm sure it's still pretty expensive so it's a very expensive program mm. the uh, um the the that was one of the key focuses of the 2018 national drug driving working group strategy document was how they could do better procurement between australia and new zealand for these kinds of devices well it'd be nice if they uh, had more transparent tendering process for these contracts <laughs> but that's another issue but um uh, the other issue is uh tac uh, obviously going on the uh, towards zero camp Campaign. They really want to see a lowering of the uh, uh, of the road toll. I think everybody wants to see that. Nobody wants their their friend, family member, colleague, anybody to die on the roads unnecessarily. Um, well, I mean, at all. There's no necessarily uh, about it. But the uh, the road toll has actually stagnated uh, over the past uh, ten or so years. It's gone up a little bit this year. Up a little, yeah. Last year it was down a little bit. The year before, so by it's sort of gone up and down within a range of about. 10 light. I think it's about between 140 and 160 when you account for the population change as well per 100,000 people or so. So it, it's um yeah, it's it's uh it's been stagnating even though uh since the mid 2000s the Victorian government has increased penalties uh for a variety of uh road offences. Um they've uh increased things like that the hoon laws that came in. Um they have uh slowly and slowly whittled those down until uh, or whittled them up. They've made them more broad so that you can be uh, captured and have your car removed from you when you weren't doing anything like uh, hoon driving or, or things like that. Uh, th- there are even suggestions that uh, a first uh, detection, I think in New South Wales, this is more happening in New South Wales, but um, uh, it's the sort of thing that it creeps across the state boundaries eventually if it happens in one state, uh, is, you know, take people's car off them straight away if yeah. there's a positive detection. Well, it is a national strategy. Um, yeah. And at the moment, the the phase of, I guess, drug testing, drug driving testing that's happening is we're moving from a phase of what's called specific deterrence, where they target places like music festivals or areas where there might be perceived high drug use or high likelihood of catching people. So trying to target specific areas to uh, a policy of general deterrence, which is where they, I guess, make it more random and try and do drug testing Everywhere, so more testing in more kind of back streets, and um, I, I keep an eye on some of the groups that announce where some of these uh, things on Facebook. are. Yeah, yeah. And, which is a whole other thing again. Um, so they're moving from a phase of specific deterrence to general deterrence, and um, there's, I guess, that just makes it even more problematic because um, they're just going to be targeting across the community and. Uh, While certainly in the cannabis community, the perception is that they're just going to be catching a whole bunch of people that 
smoke joints last weekend. Last year's inquiry into drug law reform, which was tabled in Parliament, uh, 650 pages uh, on it, and recommendation 24 of that was uh, for an inquiry into the roadside drug testing scheme, looking at some of the uh, options that have been explored overseas. Uh, And that's what this petition is calling for. You can find it on our website, psychedelia.org, or if you can find the e-petition section on the Victorian Parliament website, uh, it's up there as well. So please uh, add your signature to that. Uh, We need to see uh, a road safety scheme that's about road safety, not about catching people that smoked a joint three just, days ago. And, and just on the Parliament website, make sure you click through the Legislative Council e-petitions. Le- uh, yep, thank you. And from 2015, we spoke with Johan Hari, author um, of uh, Catch... Oh, I've forgotten the Chasing name. The Chasing the Thank you. Chasing the Scream and uh, the latest one. Uh, do you remember the name of the latest one? Oh, I totally have a mental blank. Uh, you had another one as well, but um, he's uh, been telling stories about uh, drug use and we spoke to him in 2015. Uh, here's Johan Hari. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and also streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to In Psychedelia. My name's Nick Wallace and we are joined now by Johan Hari. He's a British writer and journalist. Uh, he's written for The Independent in London and The Huffington Post and more recently he's published the book Chasing the Scream, which looks into the history and effects of the global war on drugs. Uh, The book has generated interest across the world as our conversation about drug policy is shifting away from outright prohibition and towards more pragmatic alternatives. Uh, Johan will be speaking live in Melbourne this Wednesday night at 6.30pm at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre in the Clarendon Auditorium. He's also going to be joined by Law Enforcement Against Prohibition's Greg Denham, the Australian Sex Party and Victorian member of the Legislative Council, Fiona Patton, Uh, the Australian Injecting and Drug Users League, Annie Madden, and the event is also going to be hosted by the ABC's John Safran. Tickets are available uh, right now from eventbrite.com. Johan, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be with you. So I, 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 you've been quite the man of the moment. I know you've been doing uh, interviews for uh, all sorts of media outlets. And I, I wanted to, uh, first up, rather than asking you one of the questions that you've probably been asked over and over and over, I wanted to, to get your feel for the, um, for the Australian drug conversation, considering you've had all these interviews. How, how, how has it felt? Do you feel like people are, are moving away from prohibition-y assumptions and away from this kind of fear and, uh, and abstinence uh, movement? Or what's been your feel? I think it's a really weird mixture. On the one hand, this is a pretty libertarian country. You've got a um, very sensible approach on lots of, th- uh, lots of things among ordinary people. Uh, on the other hand, you're in the middle of this bizarre hysteria about ICE, which is based on a whole load of ridiculous... The fact that the police can routinely claim as a fact in Australia that there is a drug that gives human beings, and these are their words, superhuman strength, tells you something about the magical thinking that's informing this debate. Here's a clue for your listeners. There is nothing that makes humans superhuman. We don't live in a Marvel's comic, right? The, the, but it's this bizarre... So I think you've got a mixture of... The, and this very often happens. It's the ebb and tide of drug reform, right? You get a move towards more and more sensible policies, and then you get a claim that there's this uniquely evil new chemical for which we really do need the war on drugs. Now, it's not to say there are definitely real tragedies involving ice addiction, but um, what you're being told about what causes that addiction is 
ridiculous, false, and what you're being told about the solution to that ice problem will in fact make that ice problem much worse and condemn far more people to becoming addicts, make far more addicts' lives worse, and lead to a whole load of drug-related violence, prohibition-related violence that I can talk about as well. Now, ice isn't the first drug that had, that's had that, uh, that claim landed uh, at it or thrown at it. Uh, in fact, there seems to be a bit of a, a whole history of that particular claim of a drug giving people superhuman strength. Have you, have you got a bit of a, a background on the, on the history of that? Yeah, it was super interesting looking through the archives of this. In the book, I tell the story. It's mainly the story of this journey I made over 30,000 miles and over 12 different countries to find out what's really going on in the war on drugs, what really causes uh, addiction, what's really done to drug users, the vast majority of whom are not addicts. But yeah, it was really interesting to look at the history of how this all began. And really, this myth begins, this myth that if you see where it starts, uh, there was in Florida in the late 20s, a 21-year-old boy called Victor Lacarta hacked his family to death with an axe. And at the time, Harry Anslinger, who was this government bureaucrat, had taken over the Department of Alcohol Prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition is ending. And he needs to find a new purpose and something to keep his department in business. He had previously said cannabis was not harmful, not addictive, he didn't have a problem with it. He suddenly announced that cannabis is worse than heroin, the worst drug in the world. And uh, literally the worst drug in the world. He said if the monster Frankenstein bumped into the monster cannabis on the staircase, he would drop dead of fright. And he announced that what happened in Victor, with Victor Lacarta was the result of cannabis, that cannabis A, gave you superhuman strength and B, made you psychotic so you would go and kill people. Anyone who's seen the Reef of Madness film, that was him. He pioneered Reef for madness. And with the kind of Fox News of its day, which is Hearst newspapers, he um, he basically launched this whole demonization and scare campaign. Years later, someone goes back and looks at the psychiatric files for Victor Lacarta. There's not even any evidence he used cannabis, of course. He, in fact, had had terrible insanity in his family. His family had been told to institutionalize him years before, and they had refused to. But it's interesting, as this myth becomes discredited with one drug, it skips on to the next drug. So it begins with cannabis. When you can no longer say it about cannabis, it skips on to heroin. When you can no longer say it about heroin, because people know enough people who've used heroin to know it's not true, it skips on to cocaine. When it can no longer be said about cocaine, it skips on to crack. When it can no longer be said about crack, it skips on to crystal meth, or as you guys call it in Australia, ice. Really important to keep going back to the facts. Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University has looked at this very carefully. And this is a fact you have to keep telling people. 85% of people who use methamphetamine or, crystal or ice do not become addicted. 85%. For the vast majority of drugs, the ratio is exactly the same. If you, even the UN Office of Drug Control, who are the main drug war body in the world, their slogan is a drug-free world, we can do it, which tells you something about where they are in the debate. Even they admitted a couple of years ago 90% of currently illegal drug use is what they called non-problematic, meaning it doesn't cause addiction, it doesn't harm the individual's health. Now, that, I think one of the most pernicious effects of the war on drugs is it creates this hugely distorted picture of drug use for kind of obvious reason. You might well put on Facebook tonight, I had a great bottle of wine last night, or even, you know, I had some great vodka shots on Saturday night. You'd be quite unlikely to put on Facebook, I had a great line of coke last night, or, <laughs> you know, I had a great night on ice. And that's partly because, well, under prohibition, it would be very foolish, you might lose your job, you might get, if someone might ring the police, certainly people would look at you a bit funny. So you end up with this hugely distorted picture of drug use. It would be as if the only thing we ever heard about alcohol was homeless alcoholics in the gutter, and we thought, oh, that's what alcohol does to people. 
it doesn't mean we... Now, we still have to understand what does happen. It's not, this is not in any way to undermine... Look, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And mm-hmm. as I got older, realising we had drug addiction in my family, it's really important we understand what genuinely causes addiction. I can talk about that if you like. It's absolutely not what we think, and it's not evil chemical hooks that hijack the addict's brain and turn them into monsters or superhumans or all these things that you're being told on which Tony Abbott and your government more generally and even people, more benevolent people like Jackie Lambie are basing their, uh, their advice for what should be done with the laws and legal structure of Australia. It, it's interesting because um, the whole the whole narrative that gets constructed around drugs is is one that we actually are familiar with in society, but it's not something we've seen for for hundreds of years. And there's a uh, an academic in Australia whose name is uh, Desmond Manderson, and he published a piece about 15 years ago uh, called. Uh, possession where he he actually drew a comparison between how uh, sort of witchcraft and witches were, were treated um, as as a way to sort of scapegoat uh, attacking just women that people didn't like hundreds of years ago and and what we now see as uh, as people as, as the drug narrative and also demonic possession so there's this idea that a drug has this spirit in it that it, it actually goes into people and takes control of them and changes them from somebody that they were into somebody completely different, which which is it's a strange schism because then we're we're not talking about we're not talking really about people and we're not talking about a drug anymore. We're talking about uh, a spirit that goes and possesses people, and and this is the sort of you know this is why we end up with things like uh, uh, superhuman strength. You know, uh, people take ice and they get superhuman human strength, or you know, people take bath salts and eat people's faces off, even though that again was a, another discredited thing. Um, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk to that a little bit about this uh, this notion of something external possessing somebody's will and 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 uh, and hijacking them, if you will. The tragedy of it, you're totally right, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we end up using all these religious words to describe uh, drugs, like spirits and ecstasy, and you know it's very revealing and actually even very even. If you look at- even the notion of the crime of possession, to possess something yeah. is, you know, you, you are possessing the future crime of having that drug and doing something bad, apparently. Totally. And you can really see that at, at talk in the book about, you know, this place called the Temple of Eleusis that for 2,000 years was a, was a place basically burning man for ancient Greece. It's like 18 miles outside Athens. And every year people would gather there and they'd do this kind of engage in this kind of bacchanalian revelry. You know, you'd pass around this hallucinogenic drug and everyone would drink it and there'd be this kind of huge intoxication party. And, uh, and it was shut down by Christianity. When Christianity becomes the official religion, um, it, it's shut down because one of the things you always see is religion and drugs are in a sense competing for the same headspace and what they don't want is for people to be able to get a shortcut to the state of ecstasy and reverie that they say you should only get from religion and it's one of the reasons why you know when the spanish uh, when the conquistadors first uh, invade latin america uh, you know the first thing they do is shut down the local hallucinogenic rites because they want people to only be able to get it through communion and so on they, they don't want these things to happen so i think you're right and you see a lot of the movement towards prohibition both of alcohol and other drugs comes from the temperance movement and comes from this belief that alternative forms of ecstasy and reverie are 
unacceptable and evil and have to be stopped. And all of this is a distraction from what really does cause addiction. In fact, the tragedy is it makes addiction worse. So if you look at when addiction does actually happen, I, I, you know, I've talked a lot about this and it's something that really blew my mind. Um, it's not something I understood before I started doing the research for this, is, um, you know, if you'd said to me four years ago, what causes heroin addiction? You know, I think I would have looked at you like you were a bit stupid. I would say, obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. (laughs) Exactly. We've been told for 100 years this story that's become totally part of our common sense, which is, you know, if you, me, and the next 20 people to walk past your studio all took heroin together for 20 days, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, our body would start to physically need it, we desperately crave it, and when we were deprived of it, we would be left with this ravenous hunger, and that's what addiction is. And the first thing that led to me, in fact, saying not right about that, is when it was explained to me, when this interview's over, I step out into the street and get hit by a truck, and I'll be taking... Let me say that. <laughs> Don't bring children into radio studios because they like the buttons. Turn off the, off the button. Turn off the computer in the middle of the interview. Mr. Buttons is looking very upset. This one-year-old. It's bright. I get it. It's bright. It's very fun. That was Johan Hari you were just listening to, recorded back in 2015. So obviously some old details in there, like Fiona Patton, no longer of the Australian Sex Party, was they rebranded to the Reason Party. Uh, Greg Denham, um, still involved with Leap, but Leap has rebranded to Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is what we'll be finding about out about <coughs> this um, uh, this uh, coming Wednesday at Support Don't Punish. Um, and, uh, what else was in there that was some older stuff? Like, 2015, there was... Yeah. And, I mean, Johan Hari's been back to Australia since then as well. He's, uh, because he came for his, uh, for his latest book, uh, which, again, I can't remember. And my phone's dead as well, so... <laughs> does, does this happen to you? Like, my phone now, I fully charge it. It was fully charged by 7.30 this morning, and it was dead by 12 o'clock. Depends I'm, what I'm, I'm doing. not constantly using it. Uh, it depends what I'm doing. Mine's actually pretty good. I bought my phone specifically for its battery life. So uh, okay. I did all right well, there. I thought I, I thought I, I don't know. They, they do it on purpose. I'm sure it's they're just trying to get me to buy a new phone. So we're just um, doing a little bit of procrastinating right now as uh, as the computer reloads. It's um, coming back up. It's it's also one of those things like why do they do that where you where you have a button where you press the button and it kills whatever you're doing and just shuts off. Why doesn't it say? Are you sure you wanted to do that? <laughs> do you want to cancel uh, that operation? Most things, most things do have a like, are you sure? It, yeah. it is quite funny that we're here in the radio studio and it's like one button accidentally pressed kills everything. Yeah, it's it's gone. And, uh, it, you know, ooh, hang on. It's coming back up. Um, maybe I should just mention as well, uh, because we are still raising money for Radiothon, uh, 3cr.org.au is where you can donate online. Uh, even every little bit helps. Uh, just just to give you an idea of um, of little bits, uh, $35 helps to pay for a turntable, turntable stylus. We don't play records on this show, but there are a number of shows that do uh, play records, and it's handy to have, because if you do have a record collection and you need to digitise something, uh, you can come in here and, and uh, get that digitised which is, uh, can be very helpful. Uh, now I've got to do some quick maths. Uh, must be uh, 20 minutes left, so we must have been about That's here. Really We're going to return to Johan Hari. Uh, this is Johan Hari um, speaking to us in 2015 on Psychedelia on 3CR. Put in tiny little cages alone with nothing for a month. 
And I suddenly thought, this is the closest you could ever get to a literal human reenactment of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats. And yet this is what we do to, to them... Struggling with to, to them thinking it'll make them stop. Mm. It's, it's insane. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is In Psychedelia, and we're speaking now with Johan Hari, who will be speaking live in Melbourne this Wednesday night at the uh, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Tickets available from eventbrite.com. And, uh, Johan, one of the things that you... you um, just a quick reminder, that is not happening this Wednesday, but we do have support Don't Punish this Wednesday. Find out about it at inpsychedelia.org. That's well demonstrated through um, the, the example of Rat Park that when the rats have connection, they are less likely to be addicted, showing that the problem isn't that if, if people t- or if rats or if any animal takes this certain drug, then it overcomes their brain, possesses their will, and they become an automaton who uh, is controlled by this drug. There, what what people actually need is, is connection. Uh, we were actually speaking with Mum Mark Lewis, who I, I believe you've spoken to this mm, week as well. Yeah, I like um, Mark a lot. Yeah. Mark's he, very very good on the topic, and we were speaking with him uh, last week about um, about the nature of addiction and the way that we think about it at the moment as uh, as a disease. I actually heard it described by an Australian politician as a disease of the will. And I thought that was an interesting wow. thing to say because um, uh, a, dis- a disease of the will, that, that certainly highlights that he thinks it's a moral issue. Uh, so it's connection. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about why connection, uh, why connection is, is the thing that's, that's needed above, uh, above to, to help people that are struggling with addiction of any kind, not just to drugs, but... There's a danger when we talk about this, it can sound a bit abstract or something. And I think it's really important to understand there's nothing, if we're listening to this, there's nothing abstract about this. We can look at real places. I went to 12 countries and I've been to 12 countries to look into this now. And I've been to the places that try, every different approach has been tried by now. And I think the place that illustrates exactly what you're saying is Portugal. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they tried the drug war more, they arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, basically, we can't carry on like this, what are we going to do? And they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors to look at all this evidence, including Rat Park, and figure out what would genuinely solve the problem. So they went away, led by this amazing doctor that I got to know called Huao Gulao. And they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to ice. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on making addicts' lives worse and spend it instead on making their lives better. And it's interesting, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment. I know that you, like me, are very sceptical of the rehab industry and the way of uh, talking about it as a disease. It's really interesting what they did in Portugal. So they do pay for a bit of residential rehab, long-term residential rehab, not short-term, which is completely useless. Um, And they do pay for a bit of psychological support, but the biggest thing they did is the opposite of what we do in Britain and Australia and the US. We give addicts criminal records that cut them off further, right? We make it really hard for them to get back to the legal economy. What they did in Portugal was set up a massive program of job creation for addicts. Say you used to be a mechanic. They'll go to a garage and they'll say... If you employ this guy for a year, 
we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. Mm. They set up a huge program of uh, microloans for addicts to set up small businesses. They wanted to say to every addict, you are valued, we want you, we need you. And as the addicts got back to a sense of purposeful life, um, they started to form connections, they started to get back into relationships. It's now been 15 years since, it'll be very soon, it'll be 15 years since this experiment began. The results are in. Injecting drug use in Portugal is down by 50%. Addiction is massively down. Overdose is massively down. Um, HIV transmission among addicts is massively down. Street crime is massively down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that virtually no one in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed this guy called Juan Figuera, who's the top drug cop in Portugal, and he led the opposition to the decriminalization at the time when it happened. Uh, you know, And he said the things that loads of people, you know, say the whole time. Surely this will lead to a complete disaster. Uh, he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and uh, making addicts worse before the decriminalization. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. And it's really important to understand, everywhere I've been where they've moved beyond the drug war, you know, there's a real sense of relief when people see the alternatives. And actually, I think it's important to talk as well about one of the most catastrophic effects of the drug war here in Australia, uh, which is really under-debated, which is the incredible amount of violence caused by drug prohibition in this country, right? Uh, I tell the story in Chasing the Screen mainly of the violence caused by prohibition, mainly through two people I got to know, Chino Hardin, who's a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and Rosalio Retta, who's a, who was a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Los Zetas, who I got to know, he's in prison now. Um, and, I, and I went to Juarez, one of the deadliest cities in the world mm. at the time. And um, But the dynamic is the same, and it's playing out here in Australia. I'll give you two examples, right? Um, a couple of, uh, just from the last few weeks, a small-time drug dealer called Harvey Spence um, suspected someone he knew being a police informant. Actually, it turns out he wasn't. So he drove him out to the countryside in Johnsonville and suffocated him to death burned his body in a shed, dumped the ashes in the Tambo River. The judges said, the judge at the time said it was one of the most horrible deaths he could imagine. Uh, in Calgary, four men were accused of physically dismembering a 24-year-old man called Bo Davis for being a rival drug seller. I could go on and on, Dan. This is one of the biggest drivers of the murder rate in Australia. And if you want to understand how this is related to the drug war, this is entirely caused by the drug war. Um, picture this. If you or me, when we finished speaking, decided we want to go and steal a bottle of vodka... Um, we went to a local liquor store and they caught us. Uh, that liquor store would call the police and the police would take us away. So that store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. Mm. It you know, has the, the law to back up its property rights. If, however, you and I decided we wanted to steal some weed or some coke and that guy catches us, obviously he can't call the police, right? The police would arrest him. He has to be violent and intimidating. He has to establish his patch by violence and he has to defend his patch by violence. Now, you don't want to be having a fight every day, so you've got to establish a reputation for being such a badass that no one will dare to come and take you on. Now, that dynamic, the best way of putting it is Charles Bowden, a brilliant American writer, said, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. And there is this really misleading term used by the Australian media sometimes where they talk about drug-related violence. Mm. And that implies that what's happened in, say, those cases I just talked about is someone used drugs, lost the plot, and attacked someone. That does happen sometimes. It's around 2 to 7% of what's described as drug-related violence. 
all the rest, the vast majority, is in fact prohibition-related violence. It's dealers killing each other or people who get in the way or cops to control the patch. Well, that's not drug-related. I mean, if we banned milk and people still wanted milk, that, that violence would surround the milk trade. That's the result of prohibition. Al Capone wasn't getting drunk and killing people. He was fighting for control of a prohibited market. And if you want to know why it ends, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers in Chicago today? They don't exist. Alcohol hasn't changed. What's changed is the system of regulation. All this violence, the, one of the biggest drivers of murder in Australia and the worst murders in Australia, that can be ended. By just changing our tact. You're listening to 3CR yeah. Community Radio. This is in Psychedelia. My name's Nick. We're speaking to Johan Hari at the moment. Uh, he's the author of Chasing the Scream, uh, a book uh, looking at the uh, at the history and the effects of the global war on drugs, and we were just talking about uh, some of the effects of creating a huge, a multi-billion-dollar, probably multi-trillion-dollar. I don't know the, the figures. Huge industry, global industry, uh, selling and buying and growing and producing drugs uh, without the ability uh, for any kind of uh, normal regulation, where where we can uh, resolve our disputes through uh, a. a Nonviolent means. Uh, so instead, uh, what ends up happening is is people resort to violence. And I think one of the one of the dirtiest things about prohibition, one of the dirtiest tricks that's pulled in the discussion, is that there are plenty of good people who use drugs. In fact, probably the majority of people who use drugs are good people, are active members of their community, probably have have families and have friends. These are good people. And these are people that perhaps if they were given the ability and the option, they might get involved with the with with a legal and regulated drug market and make it better, better for everyone, look after each other. I think one of the dirtiest tricks is that whenever we have conversations around drugs, it's as if everyone who takes drugs is a bad person and is immoral and incapable. And that, it's, it, that, I think that's the most disgusting thing because we're disempowered. People that use drugs, like myself, get disempowered by that narrative because then we can't come and say, actually, I know how to solve half these problems. I, I've got a good idea of how to, how to get rid of all these problems. Let me, let me do that instead of throwing millions of dollars to the police to lock people up and to the courts to muck around with, uh, you know, with, with court cases for months and years on end. It, it, I, I think that's one of the, the most troubling aspects. Do, do you see a future where perhaps people that use drugs and people that are interested in drugs for reasons other than profit might be able to take back the drug markets and uh, hone them towards something better? Again, there's nothing, I think you put it really well, and there's nothing theoretical about this. It's happened. Look at Spain. In Spain, they have, um, so there's two models of, of legalising, let's say, cannabis. There's two models of doing it. There's what they've done in Colorado and Washington and what they've done in Spain, and I've seen both. And what they've done in Washington, they're both much better than the drug war, but I much prefer the Spanish model to the Colorado model. Yeah. So in Colorado, they've had um, commercial legalisation where you go to a store and you, you, know, you buy a product from a corporation. Um, now, that's a hell of a lot better than buying it from, you know, the Zetas and the Crips and the Bloods, right? It, it's, it's a huge advance and uh, it, it's a really good and positive thing. Um, what they do in Spain, I think, is slightly better, where you, um, 
if you want to buy cannabis, you join a social club, uh, and a, it's, which is a non-profit cooperative, and that non-profit cooperative can legally grow the cannabis and legally sell it to you, uh, or rather, as part of the cooperative, you can get a share of the cooperative's growth, if you see what I mean. Um, what I prefer about that model is it's not for profit, it's not mm. controlled by corporations, there's no advertising, I don't think we should have advertising of anything, including alcohol or cigarettes, okay, yeah. uh, I think that should all be banned. Um, you know, it seems to me the, 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 the best model for, for cannabis legalisation, although as I say, you know, what they've done in Washington, Colorado is a lot better than what we do in Britain and Australia and other places. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think changing that picture of what a drug use... If I say to someone, picture a cannabis smoker, most people don't picture Richard Branson, who is a cannabis <laughs> smoker, right? Um, and this is partly... Um, this is really demystifying drug use in the way that we've demystified alcohol use. If I said to you, you know, picture an alcohol user, you, you picture going into a bar on a Saturday night and someone having a good time and, you know, and you may also be aware that in that bar there'll be a very small number of people who might be alcoholics and they need our love and support to turn their lives around. But you know that alcoholics are a tiny minority, about they're around 10% of alcohol users. Um, now, that's actually true of all drugs. And I would urge everyone to read Carl Hart's work, brilliant professor at mm -hmm. Columbia University, He's looked at all of this um, in great detail. You know, the vast majority of people uh, who use drugs are not addicts. And it's interesting, another interesting thing actually is that ratio can change according to social factors. So if you look at, uh, I'll give you an example, in the 18th century in, in London, well in Britain, huge numbers of people are driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in London. And, and what happens is what's called the gin craze, right? Where there's this huge rise in alcoholism. Now at the time, what you got was a lot like what's happening with ice in Australia. People said, look at this unbelievably evil drug, gin, which hijacks people, which takes the over actually it was widely believed that it caused spontaneous human combustion if you drank <laughs> enough gin seriously this was reported by the press at the time um things haven't changed much <laughs> exactly if we now look back at that what we see of course is oh it wasn't the gin it was that people's lives were really awful. They were, you know, they were really traumatized. They had no options. They were really miserable. And as a result, they anesthetized themselves and dulled themselves with whatever they could get, right? Uh, and actually now, you know, everyone listening to this could go and could be drinking gin now legally, and very few of them will be. It's not the demon drug. It's the social circumstances. So it's not like there's only ever 10% of drug users who become addicts. It depends on the social context. And if, you know, well, look at the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, right? It's been well documented there are higher levels of alcoholism and drug addiction among Aboriginal people. Mm. And sometimes you get this ridiculous racist claim that Aboriginal people can't metabolise alcohol like everyone else. Well, gee, it could be that. Or it could be that we subjected them, and I say we because British people did it, <laughs> we subjected them to a genocide uh, and the traumatised and horrified, you know, and, and broken survivors have been treated appallingly ever since and denied loads of basic opportunities. Do you think maybe that might be the factor rather than mm. something in their metabolism? You know, so these things are, I think most people at some level know this. When they hear it, they know it's true. But um, these myths are still promoted. It's extraordinary listening to the things that are said by Australian authorities at the moment about ICE. And also this, this you know, you hear Tony Abbott, we're going to spend all this money to keep ICE physically out of Australia. You can't even keep ice out of your prisons. Mm. And you've got a walled perimeter where you pay someone to walk around it the whole time. The idea that you're going to keep drugs out of a country like Australia with a border, borders like Australia's, is 
it's the magical thinking like thinking a drug can give you superhuman strength. It's, it's like something a, 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 chi- a not very bright child would say. Mm. I, I suspect that uh, the, the, the drug war narrative has been uh, ramped up because this particular government is on its last feet and it will be taken down next year. Uh, I, can, I can Sorry, I'm feeling quite confident <laughs> in my political predictions, but uh, I feel like this is a strategy to ramp up the fear in those who still don't understand uh, in order to try and get some cheap political capital. I think that's definitely right, but I think it's also, as I'm sure you know better than me, the Labour Party isn't that much better. And I think mm. it's partly, and I think this is why the work you're doing is really important and why lots of other people are doing really important work in Australia, you know, like Unharm and yes. um, and Alex Wodak and lots of other really fantastic groups here, uh, or Matt Noffs, you know... Um, at the moment, if you're a politician, you make a calculation, right? They always do this. There's no point complaining about it. They do a cost-benefit analysis. If I take a stand on this issue, any issue, but let's say the drug issue, um, what, what price will I pay? And what will I gain? So the price they'll pay is they will be absolutely vilified and demonised and accused of being drug pushers and all the nonsense that you, you, your listeners don't need me to tell you. And what do they gain? At the moment... The movement that will be congratulating them and rewarding them and urging them on is too small, right? And that will change as we build up the movement. I've seen this happen. If you look at what happened in Vancouver, incredible story. I, you know, I tell the story in Chasing the Screen of how a, a movement of drug users there actually begun by a homeless street addict, um, completely transformed the drug policies of Canada, um, where there are movements of organized drug users, drug addicts, and people who love and support them and want them to live and not die and not be imprisoned, gather together and they appeal to their fellow citizens. Things can change. You know, I'm gay, right? I, when I'm 36 years old. I remember when I was a kid growing up and realizing I was gay, just the things that would be said in the British media about gay people you know, were just horrific. Now, a Conservative MP who said those things would have to resign, right? That's happened in 20 years since I was 15. There's been a complete transformation in those attitudes. It happened because gay people, uh, the brave generation of gay people before me came out, they appealed to people, and warm and compassionate people listened to them and opened their hearts and changed their minds. Exactly the same thing can happen with drug users. This is ripe for changing people's minds. Most people know at some level that what they're being told is a lot of rubbish about this issue. Um, We can change it if we want to. Johan, it's been an, I feel like we could keep talking, uh, but we've run out of time <laughs> and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking oh, with my you. my pleasure. Thank and you. I look forward to Wednesday night. So Johan Hari and will be... That, oh, was, <laughs> that was Johan Hari speaking to us in 2015 when he was over for Chasing the Scream. Uh, and um, this Wednesday is Support Don't Punish at Kensington Town Hall from 4 till 6pm uh, talking about justice issues for people who use drugs. If you want to uh, uh, get uh, register your ticket, uh, head to our website in psychedelia.org or the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Uh, follow the links to our social media or to our website where you'll be able to find how you can uh, uh, book that ticket. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon. Uh, again, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate if you can donate any little bit to the Radiothon efforts. Uh, enjoy uh, the cold night that's going to be ahead of us. Uh, it's all right. We're on the upward uh, slope towards warmer days again now, sort of. It's going to take a little while, though. Queering the air up next. Enjoy your Arvo. See you later. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.